theyeshiva.net. question we're going to address today, which is an obvious question, it's a question that many have asked, either in person or in writing or in email, and you're free to share your questions, you can write them down, or email them to amunatheyeshiva.net, and the question is, can an intelligent person who has studied science and is sensitive to science and believes in the power of science and is a person of reason and intellectual rationality, can such a person accept the existence of God? This is a question that came in, a few questions that came in. And if, even if, yeah, who is this God? What, what is this thing that we call God, or whatever the word, whatever the word uh, you use? I want to begin this discussion by telling you a little story. It's one of my favorite stories, because it really... It's, uh, it, t- it tells the story about, about, about so many of us. The story goes like this. Many, many, many years ago, there's a machlekes apoyskim, if it happened 2,000 years ago, or 3,000 years ago, and yes, the story is still happening as I talk. There was an international conference between all of the fools of the world. Anyone who qualifies... As a tippish, as a shaita, as a moron, as a fool, an idiot in Yiddish, joined this conference. It was free. They got first class tickets. All they had to do was identify themselves as a tippish, as a fool, and they were good to go. What was the nature of the meeting? It was an emergency meeting, and it attracted many, many fools. The problem was as follows the meeting happened. After Shloyma HaMelech coined a phrase in his book of Mishlei in Proverbs, Shloyma HaMelech wrote, and I quote, Pesi Yamin Lechol Dover, Va'arum Yavin Dover La'ashurai. A fool believes everything because he's a fool or she's a fool. Whatever you tell them, they believe and they trust because they are foolish. A arum, a clever person, a wise person, scrutinizes, researches, investigates. The fools thus faced a major dilemma. And that is, for so many thousands of years, they kept their foolishness to themselves. Nobody knew that they were shaitan. But now Shloyma Melech gave out the secret. Now, the moment you're going to see somebody believes everything, you're going to know he's a pessy. He's a fool. So the secret came out. that They won't be able to do shaduchim. They won't be able to get into good yeshivas. They won't be able to gain standing in the community. They won't be able to become people of prominence and dignity because immediately everybody will point a finger and say, Here's a fool. The simon was out. And this spelled tragedy. So they debated the problem and the solution to the problem for seven days and seven nights. Do you know what the verdict, what the solution was? The solution was the fools decided, Ki'ish echad echad, 
like one man with one heart, that from today on, they won't believe anything. Nothing will they ever believe. And that way, nobody will ever be able to identify them as a fool. That's the end of the story. The story, however, I think, contains a very profound truth about life. Because sometimes, we can be foolish in one extreme, and we could become foolish in another extreme. Sometimes, people of so-called religious faith, indeed don't use much reason. They profess what we call in English blind faith. But sometimes you meet people or you read articles or books who also profess blind faith in atheism or blind faith in agnosticism with the same irrational commitment and zeal and sometimes even more. In other words, it becomes a religion in and of itself. A true person of reason never ever becomes bombastic and arrogance and arrogant. You sometimes hear in arguments between people. True science is always open to investigation. In fact, by definition, science could never make an absolute claim and say something is this way absolutely and certainly because the very statement runs contrary to the very MO of science. Science could say, based on the information that we have till now, we can make these and these speculations, or we can make these and these conclusions. What we're going to discover, to, what we're going to discover tomorrow, this remains also to be speculated. So the first principle in addressing these issues is that for a person to remain truly honest, truly open, what happens is a lot of conversations about this are more emotional than intellectual. But they don't seem emotional. They sometimes seem very intellectual. But they're really very emotional. People have a bias. People have an axe to grind. People have suffered perhaps pain in religious circles. People perhaps have experienced God the way it was taught to them in abusive ways. People perhaps have been shoved down with things down their throat. They have been denigrated or criticized or ostracized. So they have negative emotions and then they rationalize it, but their rationalizations are not really open because they have a very deep commitment to a particular side. Now that's part of human emotions, but we have to be able to identify it. We have to be able to explore it. Take a look. Take a look at a practical example. How many of you bought tickets for the Powerball yesterday? You don't have to all raise your hands at once, but besides you, everybody else bought, or at least 98%. So you didn't believe. Okay. What were the chances that anybody is going to win? What were the chances? I think one in 292 billion. I'm sorry, million. One in 292 million. And yet, everyone bought, either confident or hoping or semi-confident or maybe, or you never know. Somebody got to win, I'll be the winner. Now, when you text while you drive, one in four texters get into some type of accident. How many of you text while you drive? Everyone texts, and when you say you're driving, one in four get into an accident, and one of our, you say, not me. So when it's one in 292 million, it's me. 
when it's one in four, it's not me. So I ask you, people operate objectively. We believe what we want to believe. <laughs> Many people believe what makes them comfortable. <laughs> if I'm comfortable in a certain place, I believe. And then, of course, I rationalize it. Not everybody is really open to truth that will challenge them in a very profound way. And it goes in many different extremes and in many different ways. And I say this to those who ask questions, always with a a sense of cynicism and mockery, in the sense uh, that you know you're brainwashed, you're indoctrinated, I'm a person of reason, the person says. I'm a person of science, and you understand that everything you embrace is ridiculous. It's absurd. It worked thousands of years ago for people who weren't rational, but real open-minded people who are rational never believe. And I say, remember that the fools do one of two things. They believe everything, and they believe nothing. That's also foolish. Be open. And that's an introduction to... My words, uh, my words this evening. I don't think anybody has ever proven <laughs> anything to anybody. <laughs> Especially when you're dealing with issues that are so... Huh? Especially when you're dealing with issues that are so abstract, so transcendental, invisible, and so forth. I don't even know if the word proof is even uh, workable for this discussion. Tell me what constitutes proof. person says, Rabbi, prove to me that there's a God. I say, tell me what will constitute proof. What do you want? What exactly will constitute? It's not such an easy... How do you prove something? You look in the dictionary for the definition of proof. Look in different dictionaries and you'll see in every one there's a different definition of proof. How could there be different definitions of proof? Proof itself is a very elusive word. My job certainly is not to prove. Again, people, most people believe what they're comfortable believing. There could be people, they can hear powerful arguments. But if they're not comfortable with it, they will find a way to dismiss it. Intellectually or emotionally. That's how it works. We are not computers. We're made up of lots of different stuff, including very heavy emotions. And that plays a role in everybody's life. Even the greatest scientist, the greatest physicist, consciously or unconsciously. What I want to do tonight is something else, not prove anything. What I want to do is, there is a notion among many young Jews and many young people that the Yisoydus of Yiddishkeit, the Yisoydus Amun, the fundamentals of Jewish faith, somehow require blindness, irrational, irrational thinking, so, yeah, somehow you have to be able to be ready to be in a cult to accept it. To prove it, that's a separate argument. You believe what you will choose to believe. But it's unfair, it's unfair for a rational, open-minded person to call the basics of Jewish faith absurd, cultish, ridiculous, childlike, only a moron who hasn't used his brain and hasn't read a single scientific textbook can embrace these type of ridiculous notions. That, I maintain, is an arrogant statement. It's arrogant. You could say you disagree. You could say it doesn't work for you. You could say you have questions. Our world is a complicated place. (laughs) 
And there's a lot of questions. No question. That's, that's a fear statement. But the arrogance to dismiss hundreds of generations of Jews, some of them, some of them, of unparalleled brilliance and extraordinary minds who devoted their life to thought, to thinking, and did not accept anything, anything for granted. The status quo was never believed just because it's the status quo. This begins with the first Jew, Avram, who broke every idol, physically and conceptually. To dismiss it all as simply people who grew up in a cult, and when they open their eyes, they'll see there's no basis for it, is arrogant. It's a very unscientific statement. It's, very, it's not a logical way to approach it. You could say, show me, explain it to me. Those absolute statements usually eclipse deep pain or insecurity or deep anger or indoctrination or simply that you never really thought about it, which is the case for many people. Many people have not thought about these things. That's fear, you could say. I didn't think about it. I think more about my iPhone. That's fine. Then if God exists, That's fine. Or I grew up in a place where the indoctrination was of this nature. Or there could be many other factors. But what we want to show is that a person who accepts from a logical point of view the existence of God is not a blind nut job who is a fundamentalist religious zealot soon to join ISIS. That's not the case. True. True. Religion has produced monsters. It still produces monsters. In the name of God, millions have been killed. Nobody has to tell this to the Jewish people. We suffered from religion more than any other people in the world. Christianity and now Islam. Since the birth of Christianity and then the birth of Islam a few centuries later. But we always have to distinguish the fact, because as I was telling somebody the other day, are there abusive mothers in the world? Unfortunately, yes. Are there abusive fathers in the world? Unfortunately, yes. Does that mean we should abolish the institution of motherhood? Do not be a mother anymore. Do not be a father anymore. Some people can use motherhood and use it as a tool for, to, to hurt children. But the institution of motherhood is the most important institution in the universe. It's the most important and vital uh, reality to raise a new generation of people. And not only in the human race. Among the animal species as well. The dedication of a mother, the sacrifice of a mother, the loyalty of a mother, etc. And the same is true with a father. Can medicine be abused? What did Joseph Mengele do with medicine? Mengele Yamach Shemoy was a doctor, a great doctor, and used his medical knowledge to administer and behave in the most sadistic, barbaric, inhumane way that defies the imagination. Does that mean that every doctor should be fired and the institution of medicine should be destroyed? Of course not. The same is true in our case. Now, There's a lot to talk about here, and I have to condense it in one class, or try to. And I want to cover a lot. 
So I'm going to discuss two aspects. One is what we call, has to do with the macrocosm and one with the microcosm, meaning the macro is the, the world at large, the macrocosm, the universe at large, and one the micro, the individual, the human being. Let me begin with an article that I read that I think is worth repeating. I'm going to not read it word for word, but a few, a few sections of the article with some explanation. This appeared a few months ago in the December 2014 issue of the Wall Street Journal. And uh, I'm going to quote a few paragraphs, and it's going to need a little explanation, which I will insert. Please, please bear with me. In 1966, Time magazine ran a cover story asking, the cover story read three words. I don't know if any of you remember Time magazine of 1966. I don't. But there was a cover story with three words. Is God dead? Question mark. Many have accepted the cultural narrative that God is obsolete, meaning irrelevant. As science progressed, there is less need for a God to explain the universe. Or as a boy who came to me a few days ago said, Rabbi Jacobson, with all due respect, the notion of Judaism that there is a God was good before science. Now that we have science, now we have a rational way to explain the world. Much more, we don't need supernatural ideas of emunah and faith. This was the narrative that prevailed in many, in many corners, in many parts of Western society. Yet it runs out, if we can paraphrase, uh, I think it was Mark Twain, when they announced that he was dead, he said that uh, um, the rumors of my death were, uh, were exaggerated. The rumors about God's death were a little premature. <laughs> That's what it seems. The Hespid was written a little too early, right? The one who coined that phrase, uh, it's hard to say, God is dead, was Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche was a German philosopher in, uh, in the 18th century. So somebody said that, you know, they saw on, uh, on, on the wall of a bathroom, right? Uh, on the wall of, on the subway, graffiti on the subway wall. So it said, uh, God is dead, Nietzsche, and then there was a sign under it, Nietzsche is dead, God. <laughs> so uh, that's number one. The eulogy was a little premature. But more amazing is something else. And that is that the recent case for the existence of God comes from a surprising place. And that place is science itself. So those who scream that once we have science, we don't need God anymore, are often now perplexed by the fact, or surprised or hurt by the fact, that it's often science more than any other source in the world that points to God. Here is one story. The same year when Time magazine asked if God is dead, 1966, they featured another headline which is now very famous. There was a world-famous astronomer at the time, Carl Sagan, who announced that there were two important criteria for a planet to support life. Sagan said, you need two conditions for any planet to support life. The right kind of star, and a planet the right distance from that star. That's it. If you have the right kind of star, and a planet in the right distance from that star, the planet can become a source of life on it. Now, how many planets are there in the universe? Roughly octillion planets. Do you know how, many, how much octillion is? 
Huh? One followed by 24 zeros. It's even more money than most of you imagine you're going to have one day. One followed by 24 zeros. That's how many planets there are in the universe. So, according to Sagan's Cheshben, calculation that there's only two things necessary, two criteria necessary for a planet to support life, everybody imagined that there should have been at least septillion planets capable of supporting life. Septillion is one followed by 21 zeros. If all a planet needs is two criteria to support life, a kind of star and a distance from that star, so they assume there's going to be one followed by 21 zeros planets that are going to be capable of supporting life just like planet Earth. With such spectacular odds, the 1960s saw a major search for what we call extraterrestrial intelligence. A large, expensive collection of private and publicly funded projects were launched in the 1960s, and they were sure that we're going to turn up something soon. We're going to find somewhere from septillion planets, we're going to find somebody somewhere where we can find our brothers, our sisters, on some level. Scientists listened with a vast radio telescopic network for signals that resembled coded intelligence and were not merely random. As years passed, the silence from the rest of the universe was deafening. Ein koil v'ein oina. Deafening silence. Congress in 1993 decided we have better things to do with our money. So finally in 93, Congress defunded uh, SETI, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, SETI. But the search continued with private funds. As of 2014, two years ago, researchers have discovered what your grandmother would call bupkis. Bupkis is zero, followed by nothing. That's how much extraterrestrial intelligence they discovered. What happened? What happened from 1966 to 2014? Our knowledge of the universe increased. As our knowledge of the universe increased, it became clear there were far more factors necessary for life than Carl Sagan initially supposed. His two parameters that he said you need grew to 10, then to 20, then to 50, so that the number of potentially life-supporting planets decreased accordingly. The number dropped to a few thousand planets capable of supporting life, remember, from septillion to a few thousand and kept on plummeting. plummeting. Each year, the number kept decreasing. Then they started to discover new factors that were necessary to support life on the planet. The number of possible planets to support life hit zero and kept on going lower than that. What do I mean it kept on going lower than that? In other words, the odds turned against any planet in the universe supporting life, including this planet. Probability said that even we should not 
beer. Because it's illogical that our planet, like any other planet, should support life. Today, as I speak, there are more than 200 known parameters necessary for a planet to support life. From 2 to 200. Every single one of these 200 must be perfectly met or the whole thing falls apart. It's not that Sunday you have one, Monday you have another one, Schmitte you have a third one. All 200 factors have to be consistently working together for any planet to support any form of life. For example, without a massive planet like Jupiter nearby, Jupiter's gravity is so strong that it draws away asteroids, a thousand times as many would hit Earth's surface and destroy us. So in other words... You need a massive planet like Jupiter right nearby for its gravity to draw away the asteroids from hitting the Earth. The, uh, and this is one of 200. The odds against life in the universe clearly became astonishing. Yet, we are here, not only existing, but talking about existing. What can account for it? Can every one of these many parameters have been perfect by accident? Simply by accident, no planet is capable of this. That's why we stopped the search, more or less. That's why Congress stopped the search. And yet, this planet, randomly by mistake, has 200 distinct parameters that allow it to support life. At what point is it fair to admit that science suggests that we cannot be the result of random forces? Is it really sheer stupidity and blindness to say that it's logical that we are not here by accident. Doesn't assuming that an intelligence created these perfect conditions require far less faith than believing that a life-sustaining earth just happened to beat the inconceivable odds to come into being? And this is just one detail. Take, for example, the fact that earth is in the position where it is. If Earth would be in a tighter orbit around the sun, if the orbit around the sun would be a little tighter, it would be closer, it would be incinerated millions of years ago, according to science. It would have been destroyed. If the orbit would have been wider, broader, it would have been destroyed again, completely frozen. If the temperature would be not much higher or lower again, our planet would either freeze or be destroyed. Wouldn't be able to survive. And so, they stopped searching for extraterrestrial life on other planets. But there's much more than this. The fine-tuning necessary for life to exist on a planet is nothing compared with the fine-tuning required for the universe to exist. There is life on our planet. But what about the existence of the universe? What's necessary for that is completely unimaginable. For example, I'm giving here one example. If you know the terms, you'll get it. If not, it's still quite interesting. Astrophysicists now know that the values of the four fundamental forces, gravity, the electromagnetic force, the strong and weak nuclear forces, were determined less than one millionth of a second after the Big Bang. Again, the value of the four fundamental forces of our universe were determined less than one millionth of a second after the Big Bang. 
alter any one value and the universe could not exist. For instance, if the ratio between the nuclear strong force and the electromagnetic force had been off by the tiniest fraction of the tiniest fraction, by even one part in one followed by 17 zeros, no stars could have ever formed at all. Anyone who thinks about this, you take a gulp. This is quite astounding. Multiply this single parameter by all other necessary conditions. The odd against the universe existing are so astronomical, are so insane, that the notion that it all just happened, it happened, defies common sense. It doesn't embrace common sense. It would be exactly like you tossing a coin and having it come up heads 10 quintillion times in a row. Really? Really? It would be like the Powerball. You buying a ticket, 10 quintillion times, you win in a row. And this is much more crazy. The odds for that are much easier to happen than the odds for the universe to exist. So, the astronomer who coined the term Big Bang... Fred Hoyle, he was the person who coined the famous term Big Bang. He said that his atheism was greatly shaken at these developments. A common sense interpretation of the fact suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as with chemistry and biology. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. This doesn't mean others haven't argued with him. This has been a ferocious debate in science. But here is the words of the scientist who coined the Big Bang, which is accepted almost by everybody. There's a famous uh, theoretical physicist. His name is uh, Paul Davis. He said, the appearance of design is overwhelming. There's an Oxford professor. His name is John Lennox. He said, the more we get to know about our universe, the more the hypothesis that there is a creator gains in credibility as the best explanation of why we are here. Will other explanations emerge? He says he doesn't know. But if science always looks for the best explanation, this is the best explanation. What does this all tell us? It tells us this. The greatest miracle of all times, without any close seconds, is the universe. You're looking for a miracle? It's the greatest miracle you'll ever read about, you'll ever experience. Study what it takes. By the greatest atheists or agnostics, what does it take for life to live on a pl- to be on our planet and for the universe to exist, and you'll see it's something absolutely astounding and astonishing. Maybe they don't want to call it a miracle, but it's certainly the greatest miracle without any close seconds. It's the miracle of all miracles. It's the one that points with the combined brightness of every star and the cell of every organism to something or someone. Beyond itself. Wall Street Journal, December 2014. I want to go from the big world, from the macrocosm to the microcosm, and address one item, just one. Thank you. This is a discovery that is really startling. 
It was made in 1953. It's known as the discovery of the DNA. The body, the body of any uh, living organism, let's begin with the human being, begins with one cell. Literally with one cell. And uh, it reaches close to a hundred trillion cells. The body is comprised of almost a hundred trillion, not million, not billion, trillion cells. How does it know how to build a body with almost a hundred trillion cells in it? Thousands of types of cells. Each is so complex beyond our comprehension. So encoded in the cell is a manufacturer's manual. How to build and operate every single part of the cell. This we call the DNA. In every single cell in the body, in the nucleus of the cell, there is the DNA, which is the chemical blueprint that contains instructions how to build and operate every cell, and every aspect of life is created based on that blueprint. The fascinating thing is, each cell has the entire DNA the entire DNA of the body, and with each cell that's reproduced, it copies over the whole blueprint, the whole manual, into the new cell, so that each of the trillions and trillions of cells contains the manufacturer's manual for the entire body. It's even programmed to correct replications errors. It's like an editor that reviews a newspaper, reviews an article to look for mistakes, It has special protein enzymes that go up and down DNA molecules and repair it second by second. It has a code which has editor enzymes to repair it. Like literally an editor looking for mistakes. How now, when the body is building another cell and another cell and another cell, and each cell has to be different, Because each cell is there to create another function in the body. That's why we have trillions and trillions of cells. What if it takes the wrong code? What if the nose takes the wrong code? What if the liver takes the wrong code? The kidneys take the wrong code? It's a korban. The DNA has what we would call a mafteach, an index. Before it has the whole manual, it tells you, it points. This is what you need in order to create this cell. This is what you need in order to create this type. So you have here the DNA, which is basically in the nucleus of every cell. It's a ladder of a billy, of billions of rungs. A ladder of billions of rungs, of course tiny, with trillions of messages in order to produce trillions of cells. Basically the DNA, to use the language if you're familiar, it tells what they call amino acids how to form proteins. Amino acids come together to form proteins and build cells. Now understand, if you would take the DNA of every living organism, every person, every living creature, every fish, every animal, every plant, every plant from the beginning of the universe, from the beginning of existence that we know, all the DNA would be able to fit into one teaspoon. That's how small it is. One teaspoon. And you'll still have place in that teaspoon 
to put in all the letters of all the books in the world. So in such a space, microscopic, the DNA contains in each cell the entire blueprint of the entire body. And therefore, it builds, this is the blueprint from which the entire body is built. What they discovered is about the DNA is that essentially its sequence is letters. It's letters that are the messages contained in the DNA which then build a body. Now, this is really a a fascinating, fascinating discussion. But now, take a look at something. To say that it's ridiculous, it's absurd, it's illogical (laughs) to say that the fact that the DNA of every creature in every cell is organized so impeccably to be able to create almost a hundred trillion cells that work with a brain that has trillions of neurons and connections and a brain that has to make a hundred trillion calculations every moment so that the body should exist. And if the amino acids would form proteins in a wrong shape, anything would be in a wrong shape, it would be, it would be, it would be the destruction of human life. So the organization and the structure of billions of rungs with trillions of messages organized perfectly in such a space. The DNA is recoiled. It's microscopic, of course. We can't see it. It's, a, it's today with the technology, we could see the shape. We can discover the shape. To say it's all by accident. It happened by accident. It's far more crazy than believing that there's a 747 airplane and it happened because there was a tornado, and from the storm, at the end of the storm, all the pieces formed together to create a 747. Or to look at a Sefer, say, Chidushe HaRajba, or Rashi and Chumash, or Chidushe Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi Al-Arambam, or Lahavdil, Lahavdil, a play by Shakespeare, and say in the famous metaphor of the Chayvas Alavavas, the ink spilled out, the ink spilled out on the desk, and... From the whole mess, a toysvis was written on Masech Tegitin. just happened to be that the ink formed together to create letters, and some of them created words, and some of them created sentences, and that's how Talmud Bavli was written. Any person in their sane mind would say that's ridiculous. If you tell me that believing that Talmud Bavli was written by an author, and it didn't happen as a result of an explosion of ink, and I say no, to believe that you're in a cult, Real science tells you it happened through random, random events. There was no intention, there was no design, it just happened. I'm not sure that the person who says there's an author is the illogical one, or it's maybe the other way around. This is nothing compared to what would have to, what would it would take over billions and billions and billions. Even they argue the world is not older than 15 billion years and a few days. Maybe more than that. It would take hundreds of billions of years, even for slight, slight, slight probability or possibility, not probability, possibility that this should happen. But now, what's really fascinating about this is everything DNA 
is the building blocks of the whole of 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 all living of all living creatures, of human beings, of every animal, of every fish, of every tree, of every plant, of every bush. And most of our DNA is identical, but it's the slight differences that make the individuality of the person. Your height, the color of your eyes, your facial features, the color of your hair, the nature of your body. Most of our DNA is identical, even with other forms of life. But those slight, tiny, tiny differences account for the fact that no two people are alike. Some little variation in some point of the DNA, which will probably be extremely effective in eliminating disease, if we can identify that in the DNA, which is what science is working on. It's a fascinating, fascinating discussion in and of itself. But this is what makes the individuality of every person, of every living creature. And it contains within it the entire secret. So now if you'll ask a question, scientifically today, what is the world built of? What is every cell built of? Every single cell? The answer is information. Letters, intelligence. Now, you go take a look at Chumash, and it says, Vayoymer elekim yihi or vayihi or ba'asara ma'amorois nivra The world was created through letters, through speech. The whole Sefer Yitzira, the earliest Kabbalistic text, explains that the universe was created through oisius, through letters, through tzirufim, different combinations of letters. We always thought it's a mystical, spiritual, abstract idea. But this idea is translated into very real science today, embraced by any researcher, and that is that the DNA is basically information, letters. That is at the core of every single cell. It's words, it's letters. I want to read with you here, if you can go to your source. If you can go to your source. This is a piece from Tanya Shara Yichid Vemunah Perik Aleph. Take a look. It says in Tehillim, in Kufyutes, your word always stands in heaven. What does this mean? Your words. Which words? You said there should be a firmament in the water, in Bereshis. These words, these letters, stand in the heaven Constantly to give them life. His words eternally are alive. If the letters would depart and return to their source, how you call the whole heaven would cease to be as though it never existed. This is what Arizal says. already said that even rocks have a soul. Even inorganic, inanimate matter has a soul. What type of soul? Everything has in it letters. 
that give it existence and vitality, and is the only reason it doesn't become naught. I, in the ten utterances of Bereshit, says, God said, let there be a heaven, let there be man, let there be a sun and a moon, let there be light. He doesn't say, let there be a rock. He didn't say, let there be a rose. He didn't say, let there be a hippopotamus. He said, let there be an animal, but not an individual creature, and not a stone. It's the same letters of Asorim Amoris that go through combinations and mutations, which he goes on to explain based on Sefi Yitzira. There's thousands of ways in which letters can be rearranged, and therefore every single creature gets its unique letters that give it sustenance, that give it, that give it identity. Now, now we come to the next step. And here is where Yiddishkeit takes it one step further. When we say there's a creator, there's a mind, there's intelligence, it's not a random, it's not a mistake. And as I said earlier, that science itself points to this more and more and more even though there are many scientists themselves who debate it for whatever reason. In other words, it's, it's an important debate, but we're not now discussing the reason for every person's position, but the point is that when one studies science, one recognizes this is more and more. Let's see a deeper concept that Yiddishkeit emphasizes to understand this process. To understand what it means, or, or, or to put it differently, what is, when we say there's this God behind the universe, what does this really mean? Who, who is he? So many of you grew up, and you always heard a term, comes from Chumash Parshas Veschan and Moshe Rabbeinu says, Ato Saladas ki Hashem Hu Alekim, Einoid Mulvada. And there's some nice songs on the words. Einoid Mulvade, there's nobody beside him. Somebody who dabbles in the works of Kabbalah and Chsidis will know to say that one of the main ideas of the Baal Shem Tev and of his students is the emphasis on Einoid Mulvade. Einoid Mulvade doesn't only mean there's no other God beside him. Einoid Mulvade is there's nothing else beside him. Ultimate Achtus Hashem. Complete unity. What does this mean? What does this really mean? So you grow up with it. Einoid Mulvade, Einoid Mulvade. What does it mean? Does it have meaning? Can we, apply, can, we, can we apply it to ourselves? But now, we can appreciate this somewhat. Let's see how. The Ramban says famously, Bereshus Bara Lekimus HaShemayim Vesar, it's the beginning Hashem created. He says whenever it says Bara, it means Yesh and something from nothing. Something from nothing. What does it mean, creation something from nothing? We create something from something. The something from the other something can be very remote, but it's still something from something. For example, you take the seed of an apple tree, you plant it. For a seed to develop in an apple, an apple tree is something absolutely extraordinary. We take it for granted. A single seed, how does it develop into an apple tree? The DNA, the brilliance of the DNA, how it develops into an apple tree. And then the apple tree, of course, has to create a synthesis between the male 
part of the tree and the female part of the tree, what they call, what we call pollination, through insects or winds who come and take the pollination from the male part of the tree into the female part of the tree so it could get fertilized and a new seed is created which will then reproduce either in the flower or in the fruit and so on and so forth. Absolutely phenomenal. Extraordinary. When you eat an orange, when you eat a peach, don't take it for granted. Study it. <laughs> something, something phenomenal. But it's still yesh miyesh. From a seed came an apple tree. Proof, from the seed of an apple tree, you'll never get a goldfish. You'll never get a goldfish. From $1, you can make $100. From $1,000, hopefully you'll make $10,000. From $100,000, you should all make a million dollars tonight. But you start with something. The silversmith takes silver and turns it into a manure. And the, the carpenter takes, takes lumber from a tree and turns it into a beautiful stender or a beautiful table or a beautiful bookcase and so on and so forth. Yesh miyesh, something from something. Creation of the universe we call yesh meyayin. Something from nothing. And this is a major distinction. It's not just Hashem didn't have something to make it from. But it represents something very profound about how we understand cosmology from a Jewish perspective. And this is really the theme of the first few chapters of Shara Yichud Ve'amunah. The origin of this idea that the Baal Shem Tev used to speak about is already in the Shalah. The Shalah speaks about Ein Oid, V'yadaita Hayoyim we say in Aleinu every day. Also from Dvarim, Moshe Rabbeinu says, doesn't only mean there's no other God, Ein Oid. That's quite obvious that there's no other God. If God is God, there's no two gods. If there's two gods, then God is not God. But Ein Oid means there's nothing else. How do we understand this? The best, I think, metaphor. There's a lovely book called Something from Nothing by... Uh, by a professor from McGill University, a neuroscientist who's also a chassid, name is Dr. Dr. Yaakov Brower. He gives a beautiful metaphor. The metaphor actually comes from Tanya, but he applies it here very nicely. It comes from Tanya chapter 48, but he applies it very nicely to this. And I want to give, I want to give you an illustration so we should be able to, uh, to understand what this means. One of the great blessings that the Rebbeinu Shalom gave each and every one of us, and especially the men sitting here have employed it over many years, over the years in yeshiva, or whenever you're sitting at a faculty meeting in the office, it's called the gift of daydreaming. The gift of daydreaming means you're sitting now at the shear, and it's late, and you're tired, and you're exhausted, and, uh, and uh, you shut off your iPhone so you can't text, so, so what do you do? What do you do? What do you do at a faculty meeting? What do you do at a shir? What do you do for 15 years in yeshiva during the class? Many people do it throughout davening. It's something called daydreaming. Daydreaming means you don't even realize. You start dreaming about a reality. You concoct a whole reality and you can daydream for two minutes. Some experts can do it for five. And some people can do it for 15 years straight. They wake up just to go to sleep. <laughs> and for dinner. Daydreaming is a very, very interesting phenomenon. What is a daydream, right? Somebody once said a word. It means when a Gentile wants to get somewhere, he needs either a car or a horse. When we want to travel somewhere, you just start davening You mention God's name, Baruch Atah Hashem, and you go... 
first class ticket to Australia, to Israel, to Moscow, to London, to California, Miami, and it's always first class. The food is excellent. There's a shower on the plane. In your daydream, you create a reality that is uninhibited, unlimited. You can go shopping in your daydream, you buy the dress, it fits, you return it, and you keep it. Everything works. You can go to a big conference, yeah? You can imagine yourself giving a performance, you can go to a game, you can fly the world, anything you want. And in your daydream, you concoct the people, you see the people, you even get angry at the people. You get angry at people, you get jealous, you get angry, you see them jealous from you, you can hear the applause in your daydream, you have emotions, you have faces, you have places, you have times. You can have a whole reality in your daydream, you all know that. In fact, I may have woken up at least 50% of you from a very sweet daydream tonight. Where were you in your daydream? I don't know, some of you were in Israel. Some of you were back home finishing the challah. Some of you were shopping. Some of you were winning the lottery. Some of you, I don't know where you were. I have enough of my own daydreams. I say to you, Shalom Aleichem, welcome back. Somebody once asked, was Hashim, he once asked this Talmidim, he said, how do you have a chutzpah? You do a Hoshman Asra, then you come to the last piece. The words of my mouth, you should accept willingly. You weren't thinking anything you were saying. You finish, you have the audacity to say it. So the boy says, he says, he says, Rebbe, what do you, why do you think we're thinking about these words either? We said, we're also not thinking. So what's, uh, what's the problem here? But now let's think about this. I want you to think about this for a moment. When you concoct this daydream in your mind, and you built this whole reality, you may be, let's say, at a game, and there's 30,000 people there eating kosher hot dogs with mustard and sauerkraut. Mahadrim and Mahadrim, of course, glad kosher. And you're eating it, and it's all there. You see the people, or whatever your interests are. Kedusha, Chayel, whatever it is. What happens when you stop daydreaming? <laughs> what happens to all these people? Anybody? You remember when you woke up, what happens to the daydream? It's gone. Not here. Why? They were all here. What happened? Would they all disappear? The answer is, Rabbi Jacobson, it's a strange question. They had no existence outside of you thinking of them. The definition of their existence is that you're thinking of them. They are basically waves of your brain. So the moment you stop thinking of them, they cease to exist because they don't have an existence outside of you actively thinking about them. That is the definition of their existence. So now, if you want them to disappear, you don't have to kill them, you don't have to destroy them, you just stop thinking so you're not creating them anymore in your mind. In other words, in other words, you'll say, wait, this is a strange example. Of course they don't exist when you stop thinking about them because they don't have an existence outside of your mind. This is the story of the whole universe. This is what yesh me'ayin means. Something from nothing. If I stop thinking about you, you won't stop existing because you have an existence outside of my thoughts. Yesh me'ayin means something from nothing. In other words, nothingness doesn't have within it the potentiality for somethingness. Nothing is the exact opposite of something. So when we say, 
The world was created, yesh me'ayin, something from nothing. It act, on its own, it absolutely has no existence. When you create yesh me'ayesh, something from something, the something existed initially. I didn't create its existence. It doesn't exist because of me. It exists independent of me. The artist simply takes colors and a quill and a brush and a canvas and he puts it together, a beautiful piece of art. So it remains there even after he's done because it's not something from nothing. It's something from something. But when the world was created, it's bara. Yesh in meaning it's like the daydream. In other words, it has no existence. So what does it mean that it exists? That Hashem thinks, He thinks up the world, or speaks up the world every moment, and that is the definition of its existence. That is the meaning of its existence. So that is why, what does Hashem have to do for the world not to exist? One word. (laughs) One word. What does Hashem have to do for the world not to exist? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. He has to do something for the world to exist. So you'll say, wait, wait, wait. Rabbi, this does this. You're exaggerating. My thoughts, the people in my daydream are not autonomous beings. They can't rebel against me. They don't have free choice. We exist. Don't tell me that we are in God's daydream. We all exist. We have existence. We have independence. We have free choice. We have autonomy. Right. And that's why Bereshis doesn't compare creation to God thinking. It compares creation to Hashem speaking. That's the uniqueness, the depth of the analogy of speech. Because thoughts remain inside of me. My thoughts don't have a reality outside of me. My words reach you. My words have a certain independence of me. The uniqueness of creation is that God thinks or speaks the world into existence What is the definition of the world? The definition of the world is the koyach eleki, the divine energy, the divine words, just like the daydream. The stuff of the daydream is what? Is me. It's my brainwaves. There's no two realities. Nobody ever told me, you know, I'm very lonely. So I told them, why don't you daydream that there's 30,000 people living in your brain and you won't be lonely anymore. We all know that that advice won't work. You know why? Because who are those 30,000 people? They're you. They're you. They're not an existence outside of you. Their existence is you. It's something from nothing. It doesn't have an existence outside of you. So now think about the whole universe, including you and me. What is it essentially? What is it? So science uses the words DNA. DNA are words. DNA are letters. And the DNA is constantly there. But now let's understand it from a Jewish, from a Torah perspective. Especially from a Kabbalah Pneumisa perspective. What is it? Essentially these words contain within them, what are they? It's the divine energy, the divine words, the divine thoughts, the daydream, the words, Vayoymer Elikim that actually create the world, they have no existence outside of Hashem creating them. That is the definition of their existence, just like the characters in my daydream don't have an existence independent of me thinking them. So therefore when I stop thinking, they're not here. When He stops creating, if the words depart for a moment, they're not here. Where are they? 
They were never here. It was him creating that was the definition of their existence. You ever see a speaker with a PowerPoint? He brings a projector, right? He has a laptop, right? The laptop is connected to the projector. The projector projects on a, on a canvas, say, on a screen, on a wall, and you see a beautiful picture. You see a picture of a person, you see a picture of a zoo, you see a picture of a circus, you see text. Now somebody walks in front of the projector, and it's blank. You see his shadow, or somebody takes away the projector, there's nothing here. What happened? Where did it go? Why didn't it stay here? You'll say, what is it? It's simply the rays of light of the projector being projected on the wall. It's not independent. It's not the projector creates something independent of it. It's the light of the projector being projected. You take away the source. There's nothing there because there was nothing there outside of the projector. There was nothing there outside of the projector. So now, now, let's take a look inside and then let's bring it back together. Take a look at the second source. Also, Shara Yichad We're going to learn a few lines here, but think about this. Think about this. After explaining everything he explained in chapter 1 and 2. Chapter 1, that the words of godliness are this source of every being. And chapter 2, which I didn't read, is about the difference of Yesh Miyesh. And Yeshmiyah and something from nothing versus something from some nothing some something from nothing versus something from something. Listen to this. Call maskil yaldover yavin lashuroi. Any really intelligent person who understands something will understand well. Echshakol nivreviyeshu beemes nechshav laayin veefes mamish legabe koya chapoyel viruach piv shebenifol hamahava oisaytomid umetziyoi meayin mamish liyesh. That every existing being, every speck of dust, every flake of snow, every drop of rain, every cell, every protein, every chemical, every nivra is really, is really not in the presence of the power that brings it and gives it existence. Oh ma, so here's the big question. I every single created being appears as something so yesh egotistical and substantial. It's because we don't see with our eyes the divine energy and the spirit of his mouth in the created being. If the eye would be able to see the energy and spirituality that flows in every being from God's mouth, we would not see the physicality and substance of it. Because it's so nullified relative to the energy. Because without it, it would be not like before creation. 
And the ruchni is that flows on him from God's energy. That's the only thing that brings it out from nothingness to somethingness. If so, there's really nothing out, nothing outside of him. Now, what does this mean? Let's start, let's try to understand this. Take even in plain science, right? When you look at, when I'm looking what I'm looking at, when I'm looking at this mic, I'm looking at my hand, I'm looking at a bottle of water, I'm looking at you. Essentially, what am I seeing? I'm just seeing a plain body, a solid body, inanimate matter, a stand-up piece of paper. But we all know that inside of this, there's a whole moving universe. Because everything is made up of atoms. Everything is made up of atoms, including a cell in the body. But everything is made up of atoms. And the atom itself is comprised of what we call subatomic particles. So why does it look like? And there's a movement, the electrons are moving around the atom with an incomprehensible speed, and everything. I don't see it, I see something dead. It's completely dead, why? So scientifically the answer is, because the electrons are moving so fast, and we're dealing with we're dealing with a microscopic material, and it's moving so fast that the impression that it gives to the human eye is solid matter. So I don't have the kalim, I don't have the instruments to be able to see with the regular with the ordinary eye to be able to see what's in the bottom of this. But here the Shara Yichud Vamuna the Tanya is taking it a step even deeper and says, and what's behind all of that? The oisius of Elikus. But it's not that God creates the world. There's God, and He creates the world. What is the revolutionary idea here? The Torah Jew does not see intelligence and purpose in the design of the universe. We don't see intelligence and purpose in the design of the universe. Torah sees intelligence and purpose as the stuff of which the universe is made. That is the universe. It's not that there is intelligence and design. There is a God who made the world. No. It's not a God who made the world. It's not that there is intelligence in making this beautiful, beautiful universe of this person. The very stuff of which the universe made is made is what? Is divine. It's the Isis. Just like in science, it's the DNA. It's not DNA. Right? You have cells that then create something else. When you, go un- when you go and you look at the underlying structure, the building blocks of the human organism, what do you find? You find cells, and within the cell you'll find the DNA. But there's a process. Amino acids, proteins, cells, tissues, limbs, organs, and then they're combined together to create the claim shlame of a person. So what do we see? We see the outside. But what is it? What is it? There's an underlying building blocks. What is the universe? The universe is not made, created by God. The universe, just like the characters in your daydream, they're not created by you. What are they? What are they? They are you. They're an expression of you. They're not the full expression of you. You have a little more in your brain, hopefully, besides the daydream. But they have no reality independent of you. You have a reality outside of them, but they don't have a reality outside of you. And that's why you have to create them every moment. Because if you're not there, there's no reality outside of you. It is you being expressed. 
That's why creation happens every single moment. Because if it ceases to be one moment, what do you want should be? It's like taking away the projector. How do you expect on the canvas there should be, uh, there should be images? From what? They have their own images. They don't have their own images. It's a projection of the highest, the chayechelaki, the chayechelaki. That's the uniqueness of yesh and something from nothing. Now, if this is the case, what are the ramifications of this? Let's now bring this together. What are the ramifications of this? The ramifications of this are many, but I want to bring out a few major, major results of this. And that is, listen to this. When we talk about having a relationship with Hashem, building a relationship with God, serving Hashem, connecting to Hashem, what does this mean? Very good. Say that louder. You heard enough of my shayurim. You knew what to answer. Very good. <laughs> Say it louder. Say it louder. There's two ways of understanding Yiddishkeit. There's two ways of understanding Yiddishkeit. One way of understanding Yiddishkeit is Elakim Bashamayim Vani But he's bigger and stronger than me. So I gotta listen. God is in heaven, He's powerful, He's infinite, He's omniscient, He's omnipresent. He has a lot of power and He sets the rules and I have to listen to Him. Now on a technical level, yeah, it's true. But that's, that's missing the punchline. <laughs> it's missing the punchline. To have a relationship with God means to have a relationship with whom? With my truest self. With my deepest self. The very eye is a reflection of God's eye. The very yesh of the nivra is a reflection of the yesh amiti. A relationship with God doesn't mean I deny myself, I destroy myself, I crush myself, I become a slave of the big boss. A relationship with God means that you identify your truest energy. You align yourself with yourself. Avaidas Hashem means you align yourself with yourself, with your DNA, with your, true, with your true core, with your true energy. So when, the Baal, when we say the Baal Shem Tev wanted to bring out Einoid Mulvadai, what does this mean? It's not only a song, and it's not just words. It's a very profound, maybe the profoundest idea about life. And that is, it's not that we are in a relationship with God, God created us. Einoid Mulvadai means that the whole universe, and every detail of the universe, the macrocosm and the microcosm, what is it? Essentially, it's a lakus. It's a reflection of a lakus. Avoidus Hashem means getting in touch with the truth of the world, with the spiritual DNA of the universe, with the oisius of it. You want to know who you are? You have to find God. That's who you are. You want to suck the marrow out of your life. You want to figure out your deepest amkus. You want to extract and actualize all your kaychas, all your creativity. That's what a relationship with God is. It means a relationship with your deepest energy, which is essentially divine. And that also means that you're always in a relationship. You're always in a relationship. In fact, Hashem is recreating you every single moment. Not just intentionally. If He would not, you would cease to be. Every single moment, a new creation, something from nothing right now. That's how deep the relationship is. 
But he speaks the world, he doesn't think the world. If he would think the world, there could be no distortion. It's all in him. He speaks the world, in other words, he externalizes the energy. So now I could take the energy and completely misinterpret it. Just like I sometimes say things, and people hear what they want to hear. They don't hear what I say. <laughs> they sometimes hear the exact opposite of what the speaker says. That's the metaphor of, of speech. That's why, interestingly, that's the deep association between Simcha and Yiddishkeit. Why is Simcha, joy, such a fundamental aspect in Judaism? In Tzavoy, the whole Teichicha, why? Tachas, the Rambam says at the end of Hilchis Lulav that this is one of the greatest aspects of Yiddishkeit, the Simcha. Chaim Vital says that Arizal was Zoycha to all of his madregas because Simcha shall mitzvah. Never mind after the Baal Shem Tev, Simcha became such a major focus. Why is it so important? So you'll be a depressed Jew. What's the problem? <laughs> well, we all know the practical benefits of Jew, but there's something much deeper. As long as one doesn't get this, ultimately it's very hard to be a serious Jew besimcha. You know why? Because let's say I tell you, I want you to be a slave for 90 years. A slave. You, you, rep- you repress your tithes, you don't follow your craving, you're a slave to the Rebbein But after 90 years, ooh, you're going to have babka forever. With a heisa mikvah 125 degrees, especially in the winter. And you'll be able to have a coffee and free sushi and a free mortgage, a free tuition. With a shtende and a beautiful Vilna Gemara. And a hot thermos. There. 90 years in Eved. But one day, eternity, you have Olam Haba. It pays. Very nice, beautiful. But for 90 years I'm a slave and it's not exciting. That's the real question. Is Yiddishkeit ultimately repressive or liberating? We go back to our last week's class. What is it really? I could tell a person, crush your tithes, one day you're going to get rewarded. One day you're going to get the lottery, the fireball, $1.5 billion. For 70 years, and so what? And hopefully, hopefully you'll develop a taste, like lettuce. If you eat long enough, you'll develop a taste. A potato chips. So how can you be? That's why, you'll forgive me, but sometimes you see, you see, that the, somebody once told me, he said, the more religious I become, the more depressed I become. Why? Because the more serious I take life, the more I have to challenge every one of my cravings, and it becomes very hard. And that's why you see sometimes that pe- people associate real Yerushamayim with being spiritually and mentally hunchback. You have to be a little fachmurit, a little sad, a little OCD, a little non-social. If you're a happy person, it's already, it's frivolous. It's, it's almost hululus. The Baal Shem Tev had a very different shit. That's all if you don't understand Eid Mulvadeh. If you don't understand Eid Mulvadeh, there's ultimately a competition. We don't talk about it, but there's a competition. Elamai, God is the big boss, I surrender. I surrender, you know why? He could punish me, I want his reward, I want cotton candy, I don't want the electric sword. And you know what? If something is motivating you not to do an Aveda shine, it's brought in Svarim and Sifre Musa, anything that stops you from doing an Aveda is a good cheshbon. But the oimik of Yiddishkeit is the Havana, that Avedis Hashem ultimately is really 
connecting with the only truth of existence, with your deepest truth, with the truth of all existence. A relationship with Hashem is not, you're enslaving yourself to the big guy. You're not enslaving yourself to the big guy. Avoidus Hashem means really realizing that Einoid Mulvadi, the whole world is Ashtikalakos. Every moment, every experience, every encounter, every chush, every faculty, every nukuda in a person's life, every cell, every part of the goof and every part of the nefesh, what is it? Ilu nitnu yeshus la'ayin liris, what is it? A relationship with God means a sensitivity to the music flowing in the world. The world is music. The world is words. The world is consciousness. The world is intelligence. The world is mindfulness. It's not mindfulness created the world. The, 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 the sidewalk I walk on, the carpet I step on, the bed I sleep on, the people I talk to, that is not a sidewalk. It's not a bed. The shoes I wear, it's essentially streaming with life, with vitality. It's all consciousness. It's all mindfulness. It used to be a few hundred years ago, people, these, this language would be strange, very superstitious, very weird. Today, today, if you can't relate to this language, wake up, smell the coffee. This is the language of science. This is the language of physics. This is the language of cosmology. This is the language of, of, of quantum mechanics, certainly. This is the language of the new world. The language of the new world is the language in which we can relate to the universe and see that the universe is essentially the, de- the entire the universe itself. The stuff of the universe is 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 godliness. Dveikus with Hashem means dveikus with Hashem means dveikus with the essence of me, with the essence of you, with the essence of the universe. And there is also another very important, there's a lot, but I want to bring out one more implication of this. Maybe extremely significant and important. Because if even the smallest particle, an event requires constant animation by Hashem's willed thought, He has to actively want to dream it up, bring it into being. Without it, it doesn't exist. So then, obviously, these little details, what we call little details, are are of great importance to God. Otherwise, he would not continuously trouble himself, quote-unquote, to actively think them up. So that means every detail of life that we think is garnished, for Hashem, it's extremely significant, because He's willingly, He wants to bring it into being. In addition, in addition, the fact that he chooses to create our finite world with all of the details and nuances is absolutely astounding. It means that nothing is trivial. The existence of a speck of dust requires the same attention as a galaxy. The existence of a small little creature requires the same attention as hundreds of millions of stars in the galaxy. So the speck of dust... The little person, the little moment is as essential to God's plan as the galaxy. There is a transcendent purpose in everything. 
So there's no such thing as a coincidence. That's why the same Baal Shem Tov spoke so much about what? Hashgacha Pratis. The leaf that turns over. The little encounter. Come on, give me a break. If God really exists, He cares about the leaf. You know what? You look like from outer space. Like a Chinese checker. Worse. Smaller. A little bean. Smaller than a bean. That's only from outer space. From God's perspective. Hashgacha Pratis by divine providence. Every person you meet, every detail of your life. He really cares if you wait five hours and 58 minutes after Shabbos afternoon shalom to eat ice cream at Sai Shabbos, or six hours. This is what he's busy with. It's a little embarrassing, no? He stands with a clock, 5.58, six hours, okay, pizza, pizza, it's Mitzvah Shabbos, pizza, good. Baruch atah, This is Judaism. You're making a joke? Person lit a match on Shabbos, so you're going to tell me the big God cares about a match? He knew, as though a match is significant? It's a, a guy once told me it's a picorsis. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, it's a logical question. It's a very good logical question. But now the question is, what does he care about? A galaxy? A galaxy is a chefza. But the same attention needed for the galaxy is needed for the match, is needed for the flake of snow, is needed for the droplet of rain, is needed for the blading grass, is needed for this little person. Because everything needs active creation every single moment. So if that's the case, there's no difference between the big thing and the small thing. In other words, there's no such a thing as a small thing. Does this describe to us who God is? No. But it describes to us who we are. Enoid Mulvade. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. And I learned that somebody said, what's the whole world? The whole universe minus a shema, a shema, and a Thank you, Rabbi. In, in, in short, in short, there's many, many vehicles, we're not going to go here, right? I told you in time of the Marcus, that's the source of the Oysius, which is the DNA, I gave in the Mitzrayim to be able to extend it, and with that, you know, the Very good. I say so. the odds of what of DNA uh, for me. Going from simple, like simple cell life to like complicated. Hur- it's like going to a hurricane, and a hurricane is a garbage dump in prison. You may spread hope. Sure, sure. What's the what's the If it's Yeshmeyayin, it has to be. It doesn't exist. Like a daydream. If, if, to say he did it that way. If you want to use Seichel, there's a raya. 
if something is yeshmayan, you have to create it every moment. It's like you throw up a football in the air. It's not going to stay. No, no, the yesh. Right, but I'm saying since the yesh on its own doesn't exist, like the character mutation. No, mitzatzechol a yesh that created from iron can't have independent existence. Because it reverts to what it is. Doesn't with smartness. He's smart, but the yesh is a yeah, is a is a mitzvah that can't exist. So it's his energy. So it's vaita his energy. But him and his energy are one. It's not. If it's his energy, it's vaita his energy. You understand? It's not. His energy is not separate from him. Elamai, you want it to exist outside of his energy. So that doesn't mean he's smart. That means that's smart. <laughs> you get it? Just because Shimshon Agibri is powerful doesn't mean I could pick up a building. It means he could, not me. The Yesh on its own is Ayah. That's Mitzatzechel. Mitzatzechel. Das is a good Shaila. Das is a good Shaila. Yet is a Chatanashama. Does a Gdariza. Huh? Huh? So that message is like this You have Tzela Melekim Yeah, and then you have Neshama Tzela Melekim is The ability of the person To de- be this. You can't expect the ant The ant is also from the Sadamamas But the ant, the ant just functions It goes, the process And it's that It'll never change It always fulfills its purpose doesn't grow, but it also doesn't uh, doesn't destroy anything. It does exactly what it has to do. The tzelum alakim is the ability for for seichel, for reason, for investigation to become aware of this. The neshama is shenatifinim. The neshama is an inyan from chelik alakamimal. It's already part of the boyle, not the bria. That's what we spoke about in Muna. You were here a few weeks ago. That's the koyecha Muna. It's already a different inyan. The chelik alakamimal is part of the boyle. It's not part of the bria. The kuzri says that it's doyman. Semeya, Chaim, Medaber, and then there's the Yisrael. It's the Neshama, it's part of the Boire, it's not part of the Briya. It's part of the Boire. It's Kilo Chelek of the Boire. Now, everything is a Chelek of the Boire. There's a difference of Dibur, Machshava, the difference of Dibur, and Vayipach, the Akko Neshma The Neshama has a Tfis in the Boire itself. But you're right, in that in there's uh, every Stavardi said in Rashami Lama Kavu Havdullah Bakhina Das. In Ain Das Havdullah Nanah. So Pashtasa means to be able to separate that from the Khabul Das. Afal stuff from the Khabul Das, Bastaf from the Khabul Das, to S and Dafin Das, to gain that from the Alphabet Das. So one of the Pshakti is Prankzik. As uh the Pashtas was the difference of Shabbos and Chayv. Shabbos is the Dvar Hashem and Chayv is the Dvar Hashem. Yet the moment from Zman is Dvar Hashem. Was the Chayv from Dusha and Chayv. Then that from Hadron. Where can Mavdol Zantin? She ain't Dvar Hashem, it's not Zvayt Dvar Hashem. At the Chayv and Adam Das, that this is a Havdol. This is Chayv, this is Chayv, this is Shabbos.
thinking of the Muslim, saying that the Muslim are protected, can have it like, in reality nowadays. You, you put on a glass, it's virtual reality, and you play a game. So you can choose, you can shoot this guy in the game, you can turn around, you can do everything in the game. But what is behind it? What is really behind it? Lines of code. Just words. Someone put the lines of code, and now you are, you think you can choose to do, what, do whatever you want. Someone can just shut down the code or whatever, manipulate it. Beautiful. Science is a beautiful thing. Science is the ability to know the world. Science is a Mishnah Sanhedrin. They told you about Kiva. If people are worshipping the sun, why does Hashem let the sun happen? So he said, You understand? You know the Mishnah? You know the Mishnah? You understand the Mishnah? They told you about Kiva. If people are worshipping the sun, why does Hashem let the sun exist? You know what that means? Same thing. Science is a gift. A person could misuse it, of course. The mouth is also a gift. A person could misuse it. That's how the world is created. There's a, there's, everything could be used in productive ways and non-productive ways. A knife you could use to cut challah. You'll be Mekayim mitzvah of Lecha Mishnah. And you could use it for other things. Because it doesn't mean that every knife is bad. Depends how you use it. Same as science. The Rambam writes in Torah, if you want to reach Ava and Yireh, you have to study uh, natural science. <laughs> okay, not everybody held that way, but uh, that's what the Rambam says. She is boinen of how the world works. That's what he says. The fact that it's misused, yeah, that's true. The whole world is misused. That's the avoid of a person, not to, not to get uh, not to get confused. That's why we have these shiurim. <laughs> Shouldn't get confused. <laughs> it seems that we don't have any real problem to portray of God's will in Hashem, right? So if we don't really have any problem, how can we affect anything? We're not real, we don't. We're only a, almost in the imagination of God. So, but that's the most real thing, God. <laughs> no, he spoke. Remember I said he spoke. It becomes concrete. There's a yesh. But only, God, but only God's the real thing. Of course. But only... Yeah. Yeah. His dibur becomes yesh, yeah. No, he's... Oh, why Hashem called, called ayin? No, no, no. That's a different why Hashem is called ayin? That's a good question. The answer to that is because uh, that's a question generally. Why we say the Bria is Yesh Mayan? Would you say the Bria is Yesh from Asha? From, from him, yeah, from him is Dibur. The answer is there's a few reasons. I'll tell you two. One is because we call Ayan that which we can't detect, we can't grasp it, we call it Ayan. In our universe of what we can hop, it's Ayan. 
We have no way of being a typhus. So it's not really ayin, it's ayin to us. Right, it's ayin to us. In other words, what are we typhus? We typhus things with our five senses, even with our seichel, right? We detect things. Godliness is something we don't detect, we call it ayin. There's a deeper reason that Lagabe him it's called ayin. Why? Because when somebody cleared in. Because, because it's only a ray, it's only isius. The marshal. Let's say you're thinking up a daydream, right? So you have these things in your daydream. How much of your personality, how much of your personality does it occupy? How much percent of all your thoughts? Ayin. Legabe, your whole presence is ayin. So Legabe Hashem, it's called ayin. Ayin, so it's both ayin Legabe us because we can't detect it. And it's ayin Legabe him because it's only a ha'ara, it's only an ois. You know, behei nivro elam haza. So it's, also, it's ayin on both levels. That's why it's called ayin. Also, when we experience emotions... That's what the Balatanya writes. When we experience emotions, are, is, is it really Hashem experience, experience emotions through us? Because we That's are, beautiful. In many ways, yeah. We're like happy. Yeah, we're yeah. Like we're able to sing. Is that a, yeah, yeah. That's a divine. That a, it's Everything is a divine. Godly, godly we're, energy. We're like the messenger... We're 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 always dovak with them, yeah, yeah. So yeah. do we increase Hashem's? Uh, yeah, of course. Add Hashem. Yeah, we are. Even we're though pump. he's perfect. Oh, so it's not really adding because we are trying to speak. So part, to speak, part, yeah. part of it. Part of something, but not the whole. Thing. The Rambam writes, "Be yedias atzma yoydeya kol hanevroyim, um beamitas himotzei nimsu kol hanevroyim, be yedias atzma yoydeya kol hanevroyim, because they all come from him." means that every nekuda in life, right? It's, it's, there's no two things. No Hashem and there's a world. Hashem and there's me. It's not separate. It's one achtos. It's one inyan. Yeah. Hashem is the total package and all the people. And beyond. Right, right. There's no... We have no identity outside of God. God has an identity outside of us. The characters in the daydream don't have an identity outside of you. But it doesn't mean that your whole identity is the characters in the daydream. <laughs> the Gemara says, Who Chazal said, Mender says, Who Right? Your typhus? Has typhus given? Okay. Over here in the show, no? They have a lot in the show. They smash the Not tonight, but they'll have a few days. Vosakte? So state of Neshama Vayipach Bapa. When Tanya state Neshama is Machshava, when the Olam is Dibur, it's a primitive salakos. It's a primitive salakos. As Typhus, the boy, the Nishna, the Briya. The character was existed in the cup had not been I can't understand what you want. A man should have been 
This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.